Starting a podcast can be very time-consuming. I've been doing it for more than three years now, and my biggest challenge was finding a way to distribute my episodes across major audio platforms in a way that was easy, effective, and free to use. That's when I came across Anchor. And the best part is that you can actually make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So if you're interested, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalife. Hey, everyone. Hope you're having a great week, and thanks for tuning in another episode of Let's Grab Coffee. Before we get started, just a quick reminder, if you like this episode, you know, if you find it of value, share it out. Let the community know about it. Uh, if you're not already a subscriber to the podcast, always appreciate it if you hit that button. Let me know what you think. Leave a review, rating, etc. On this episode, I interview a good friend, Anas Ghazi, who's the Chief Strategy Officer at Stagwell Group. Prior to that, Anas was the Group Officer at Kantar, a world-leading insight data consulting company. He also worked at Amex and really brings that global perspective when it comes to strategy, business, and management. But what I think you'll appreciate from this podcast, and certainly what I sort of took away from this interview, the conversation is Anas's mindset and outlook on life and the way he attributes meaning to things apart from just his work position, title, or the company that he works for. So who really is an Asghazi? What is an asshole about? That's a a big question. I am about living my best life and dreaming big. Uh, Ever since I was a child, I've always been about aspiration. And I I remember we used to have a a front room in our house in uh, London that we used to call the Diwan Khana. And I would sit there even as a kid and just for hours be lost in my thoughts about cool things that I was going to do one day when I grew up and uh, would just sit there for hours just manifesting is now the term for it but uh, all about manifesting and living a life that is driven by experience and having it all I think that's really important I've realized you may not be able to have it or I may not be able to have it all all the time but I can have it all just in the right time it's interesting we're talking about manifesting and you know goal setting and sort of uh, you know putting the vision board together is this is this who you envision and has to be if you kind of look back the 10 year old self looking at you now would would that version be proud of who you are and, and where you are today absolutely so the, the so lily singh just put up this thing on uh, youtube around how to manifest and i absolutely loved it all the way down to vision board and all and i think before i even knew what manifesting was I always knew, even as a child, that I wanted a certain type of lifestyle. I knew that I wanted to travel the world. I knew I wanted to be connected with creators and people who were very artsy and were putting out content in the world. Even though I didn't know what it was at the time, I just always just had these thoughts of, you know, wanting to ride horses and so forth. So anything I've generally thought about, even as a child, anything that I found interesting, it has all to some degree or another come true. From wanting to be an actor right here in Chicago to walking up and down Michigan Avenue auditioning to being in the West Loop with David O'Connor to being at Cannes and meeting really cool people and connecting with folks who you see on television. It has been all of that to having a New York career and now I've been very blessed to be working at a One World Trade Center where you get these epic views. It's all that manifestation as a child even though I didn't know how I was going to get there I manifested it then mm-hmm. and it's become something now. 
what I found interesting about your background is obviously you come from the sciences, given your bachelor's. But what I didn't know, and I'm, I'm kind of learning this for the first time, is your acting background. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, oh, man. Yeah, it's probably the worst kept secret, especially here in Chicago. So I actually began as a, as, as a teen actor. So when I was like 12 or 13, I got picked up by an agent. And it wasn't because I was incredibly tall or incredibly handsome or any of that stuff. It was only because I looked different or I looked as my card was ethnically ambiguous. <laughs> At that point in time in the industry, especially here in the Midwest, it was either you were African-American or you were Caucasian. There was very few folks who were somewhat in the middle. Mm -hmm. So I got picked up because I was able to play like a Southern Italian to playing Latino, to playing a Middle Eastern, to playing an Indian, a Pakistani. It's always really daunting when I would walk into an audition thinking I was the only one who looked like me but there'd be 10 other guys who look just like me. And they, they generally tell you what to wear at an audition, in some cases, how you should do your hair. So you'd walk in, there'd be like 10 other guys with blue shirts who look similar to yourself. Mm. So it was really daunting. It was almost one of those episodes from Friends when Joey's looking for a hand model and finds all these guys who looks like him. So for me, that was actually, I always want to be an actor because I was driven by experience. And so I thought as an actor, I'd get the experience of playing different characters, being different people. And here in Chicago, I was able to do that. I did voiceovers. I started off actually doing more print work. And then from print, went into voiceover. Then did a lot of industrials. And then went into like commercials and uh, some pilots and things to that nature. So I think it was a great experience. It was something that taught me... The most valuable lesson was it taught me a lot about myself. It taught me, especially at such a young age, that rejection happens. As an actor, you are perpetually auditioning and you are perpetually being rejected. And you just have to develop such tough skin, especially when you're 15, 16, 17 years old. And people are saying no to you for reasons that are out of your control. You're not tall enough, your nose isn't straight enough, your eyebrows don't look a certain way, you just don't fit, or you know your coloration is too light, too dark. But you just have to learn how to deal with rejection and realize that someone saying no to you in a professional setting doesn't mean that no, this can never happen. It just means not right now and just knowing in yourself that you can power forward and make things happen. And I, I, that was actually one of the largest lessons I took into professional and corporate America was that rejection happens, I'm just not gonna allow it to define me. And if anything, that rejection is going to make me stronger in what it is that I do. I mean, don't get me wrong, now when things don't go as planned, it still hurts, it still stings, you, you have those down days, but I think I'm able to cope with it much better and I'm able to overcome it at a much faster rate because I've already gone from being a perpetual uh, auditioner where you get rejected if you're lucky maybe a seven out of ten times most people get rejected nine out of ten times when you're auditioning if you have a book rate of 30 percent you're doing really well so that was it was an incredible life learning that has actually bought has come through with me even in corporate well I can appreciate the uh, especially the acting part because Especially in school, I was involved in you know improv theater. I acted in a in a play called Annie um, in high school. So you know probably wasn't the best from a popularity angle, but uh, definitely looking back, gave me a lot of that confidence in business. So for you, what did you find those crossovers were from you know acting your days in theater and modeling into business now? So what is with interesting on the acting side and to your point like i've come from a very educationally i've got bachelors of science i've got masters of science i've got another graduate like like all my graduate degrees and so forth have been focused on the sciences and what acting really taught me was 
you know, you've got to know, even before this idea of tell the story, it's funny, telling stories is as old as time from the first cave painting in France to the new slogan of being a storyteller. So it's this dichotomous piece. What acting really taught me was around how do you internalize a concept and make it your own? How do you give your own spin to an idea to make it authentic? Uh, I think with acting, it's a lot about listening and reacting to what's around you. So even in corporate, it has been a the, from poise to the way when I first started working, I would wear a shirt and tie into work every single day. And everyone's like, you don't need to do that. And I'll say, yeah, this is just this is me. Like I, I like to come together and be 100 percent myself so that you never know what kind of opportunity is going to come around the corner because I'm ready for it. And when I began working actually down the street here at TransUnion, the number of times I was put forward in front of clients or asked to join meetings because I was dressed appropriately shaped my entire career, I'd have to say. So acting actually taught me one of those things of always be ready. No matter what, be prepared because you never know what is gonna be around the corner. So you've got to bring your best self and all of yourself into work every day because you never know what additional opportunities may be sitting in front of you. Walk me through how you became the group officer at Kantar I think it was your first sort of CEO position um, in your sort of background. And so how did that happen? How did you end up in that position? What went down? So I'll take a step back in terms of yeah. how my career growth happened. It was not premeditated by any means. And like many people, it was all very, it was nonlinear. So I started off at TransUnion uh, as a data engineer where I was coding financial models for, for the likes of Citibank and American Express and Bank of America. And what that really meant is they would, well, they wanted to understand how specific consumers in their portfolio would react. Would they, would they default? Would they not default? Were they prime for a cross-sell? What types of uh, character, financial characteristics would their portfolios uh, exhibit so that they could make decisions on them? And then also from an acquisition perspective, how should they be acquiring new card members based on their financial behavior? So I started off coding those models and that's when, before data was even a thing, it didn't even exist. It was, it was just, you came in and I was, co I was coding, gosh, uh, JCL, job control language, so mainframe. Mm -hmm. And I started off doing that and then I moved more into a client servicing role because the models were really tough to explain. So from being a coder to being a client servicing person, I began leading teams of technologists to help create what those models look like while also working with clients to help them understand and audit those um, those financial models. And then from there moved into roles where I was leading like product development for like capital markets right around the crash of how should different banks be looking at specific real estate portfolios? What was the actual worth? How much should they be investing into them and so forth? So I held a variety of different roles and I was lucky to have a variety of different roles because they were interesting to me. And I was able to get experience around product product development, marketing, and so forth. And then as luck would have it, my client at the time, American Express, uh, they asked me to join them in New York. And so that's how I actually made my transition from TransUnion mm. over to New York with American Express, where for a hot second, a hot second, literally for three weeks, uh, my role was to, I uh, came in as a senior manager for data analytics and capabilities. And I was literally doing the same type of work around return on investment, bringing in different data feeds, but then my VP at the time, she was like, hey, you have a Facebook account? I was like, I do. And she was like, can you do develop our, our digital roadmap and lead digital transformation for us? 
and I was it, so it, once again right time right place and it was interesting because that was around like Novemberish and I had zero holiday time so while everyone was going on holiday I took all of December to develop out what does digital transformation look like for the risk information management division of American Express and that's when I began partnering more with like the with the likes of like Twitter and doing evaluations of what types of social networks should American Express partner with to engage new card members and to give them a better experience because American Express is completely an experiential company. So I was there for about two years on that realm, a realm of digital, digital transformation. And then I watched an episode of Mad Men and I could tell you the exact episode. Which one? It was the one where John Hamm, he pitches the idea of the carousel for Kodak. Oh, yeah. And I saw that episode and I was like, I could do that. And I remember calling my sister up and I was like, you know what, I think I want to go to advertising. And my siblings are used to my ideas of just being outlandish. They're like, dude, you're in financial services. You're doing okay for yourself. Why would you want to rock the boat? And I was like, because I just feel like I could do that. So I followed my instinct. And this is another thing that acting has taught me is you got to follow your gut. And that is one of the toughest things to do because I have been taught and maybe many other people as well that you have to rationalize all your decisions as a data guy what's the data behind it your gut your instinct there is no rationalization yeah, it's, tough to quantify, right? it, it's tough to quantify and it could be completely antithetical completely antithetical to what's in front of you but my instinct told me advertising was going to be good for me mm -hmm. the same way as a child I knew moving to New York was going to be good for me couldn't rationalize it didn't know why. It's almost like intuition, right? Like Complete intuition. But there's no data behind it, right? You just follow it. Yeah. But it's tough because everyone's like, look, you've got all this other stuff, but why would you do that? That's mad. You're gonna to move to New York, it's really expensive. You know, you've just had some, you know, personal milestones in your life. But I went with my gut. Which it gets tougher and tougher, but as tough as it gets, it's even more rewarding. So was at American Express, watched an episode of Mad Men, literally put it out into the ecosystem that I want to move into advertising and I met with my sister introduced me to this headhunter had a quick conversation six months later this headhunter ends up being at WPP and he said I'm at this group called the data Alliance and they're looking for the director of partnerships would you be interested and I was like sure he sends me a six-page job description and I look at it and normally like you see a job description you think you know you could do about 70% of it 20% of it you feel like you could learn and 10% you're gonna wing. I looked at the job description and I was like, this is everything I have ever done. Went in for the interview and I actually, I met the CEO at the time who was this gentleman by the name of Nick Nyhan and Data Alliance had just formulated. It was just an idea that had come through Martin Sorrell and team and Nick had put it together. It was a very small team. Rather than fully understanding the role and the firm, I was so in tune to Nick's vision and I just saw Nick as a good person and a person who I wanted to be like when I grew up. And I think, and I was just like, I don't care what the firm does, I am just so inspired by this person as a leader. I'll walk through fire from me in just one meeting. And I was just like, whatever it is, I'm gonna do it. So you tell me within three days, four days, I had a couple of interviews back to back. Within a week, I had a new job offer as director of data partnerships at WPP's Data Alliance. And that's how I made my foray into advertising. Mm. And you know, that was a pivotal time in the advertising ecosystem because at that time, Publicis and Omnicom had announced their merger. Mm -hmm. 
so had they come together, they would have been the largest advertising holding company. And WPP at that point in time, they were looking to continue to differentiate themselves. And the way they were going to differentiate themselves was data. So I came in and began creating different data partnerships. My first one was the DataSift and Twitter. And then from there, I did data uh, partnership with Spotify. And ultimately, what these data partnerships did is it was it was allowing the advertising ecosystem to connect with different types of data to give more personalized messages, to understand user behavior and so forth. And what started off as a tiny team in New York, I was able to ultimately develop 22 global partnerships and grow the firm into India, Indonesia, South Africa, Europe, did it all off of just what I thought was in my head and held a variety of positions along the way. But within two and a half, three years, I went from being a director to global director to MD to becoming CEO. And it just, it was very non-premeditated. Like when I made MD, I thought, yeah, I'm good for a couple of years. And that's actually when I moved back to Chicago. I was like, I'm good, my career is set, I'm gonna focus on my personal life. And within four months of that, the board appointed me CEO. Wow. And then I was CEO for two years, and then from there, moved on to being the growth officer for Kantar, and now here at Stagwell as chief strategy officer. A mentor of mine would always tell me, you know, don't focus on the next title, the next position, the next promotion. The next 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 just focus on what you have maximize this opportunity that's in front of you and it'll lead to bigger things was that the sort of mindset you had as you were on the come up uh, my thing was i i had to love what i did and i especially at wpp's data alliance i loved it like it did not feel like work mm-hmm. and so it was it was just who i was it was as much me as wearing the sweater and this tie together it, it was just just part of who I was. So I wasn't really thinking about the future or anything to that nature. I just knew I loved what I did. I knew I was with a great team. I was leveraging every skill set I had ever had. And then I began having these great experiences of traveling the world and being at Cannes to going out to Jakarta to you know being in Delhi and meeting amazing people who are industry leaders from film to music to tech. So it was just, I was just doing what I thought was right for the business. And I was very lucky that what was right for the business also made me feel good as well. So it was all part and parcel. And I think it wasn't until later on in my career, like I think I had made CEO and I was at a community event here in Chicago where someone came to me and they're like, I'm so inspired by you. I was like, yeah, right, me, I'm like a normal person. They're like, we don't see too many people, too many Muslim people becoming CEOs before 40, especially with big firms. And that's when it dawned on me that I haven't seen that either. (laughs) And then all of a sudden you realize that there is a responsibility because I think just very candidly, I had put on blinders to the rest of the world. Um, Even if I didn't see people like me, I just ignored it. I was like, that's normal. And I had normalized seeing people all being one way. Uh, not realizing that in order representation is so key that when you see more of yourself it gives you more hope that there is space for you and uh, I mean for example like uh, I love the uh, the commercial during the Super Bowl with the girls who code and Lily sing around making space for women because I think making space for women making space for people of color making space for anyone who's different that representation it inspires other people as well so I think that's when I start to realize that there is a responsibility for it and that for people who do have the opportunity to move forward, you have to bring other people up with you as well. During your ascension, did you have any mentors around you that really 
you know, provided that sort of advice, sounding board. What was that like for you? Uh, so I'll be very candid. I never had Asian mentors or Southeast Asian mentors or Muslim mentors or anything like that because I just didn't know any. So my mentors were, they're, they're white dudes. And so I, I do have a, like when people are like, yeah, white guys get it easy and so forth. And I, it, it's tough for me to swallow that because the people who have been the most generous to me in my career have been white guys. Um, so I'm like, you know, you can't label and bucket one group all as one. Uh, like I said, like Nick Nyhan, this guy is just amazing. He has such a generosity of heart and spirit that I aspire to be like him. I was very fortunate, especially in my career at WPP, that I had mentors who would block and tackle so I could go make the play. They made it easy mm -hmm. for me. And then the same has happened at Kantar and so forth. And so that helped. I love that, man. Blocking and tackle there. Yeah, really cool. because that's what it is, right? So it's because otherwise, if you're blocking and tackling and trying to make play, especially when you're just starting off, it's really hard. Yeah. It's really hard. You can't really get anything done, right? Yeah. You can't. And I would say I was fortunate earlier on my career at TransUnion, like uh, one of my managers, Tanisha Hogan, another manager, Michelle Sims, uh, they were amazing because they, Tanisha took an interest in me, in me as a person. She reminds me till this day, we're still friends. During my interview, I had to step out because I had a call for my agent for an audition. And she's like, no, so you were this glamorous guy who was just like this actor who was doing this as a side thing. But she took an interest in me as a person. And Michelle Sims taught me how to, no task was too big or too small. She was my manager, but she would, I remember one time she ended up cleaning out an entire cubicle because one of our team members had left. Instead of having facilities do it, she said, I'll do it. So like I've been very lucky that I've been inspired by good people and I've been around people who have taught me how I wanna be. Just as important has been being around people who, who weren't, that they, they like they just weren't my cup of tea, Got and it. and you can learn from them. Just yeah, like, and I was always like, I'm not going to be that way. Like I'd say, one of the biggest pieces I took coming up in my career is, I remember when I'd go in for a review earlier on in my career, and I would have to go and present everything I did, and my, my there were certain managers who'd be like, well, it's up to you for me for you to remind us what you've done, and I'm like, no, as my manager, that's your job to know what I've done and how I've contributed. Otherwise, what are you doing? You know, isn't that part of leadership, knowing what everyone's contributing? And that was one of the pieces. And anytime I've led teams and ran firms and so forth, it is my responsibility to know what my team members are doing so that I can reward them right. before they even need to ask. Because by the time someone comes to asking, the rewards you have to give them is much larger anyways. So if you know what they're doing and you're advocating for them all the time, you know, then, you know, they're and you tell them, hey, before you ask, I'm actually gonna give you this, or I'm gonna give you this opportunity because you've slayed it here. Right. That is super important. So I think just coming up, and even when I became CEO and growth officer, and now as, as chief strategy officer, I'm very cognizant that I need to be aware of what my team is doing, because when they're doing things well, you gotta, before they even ask, you gotta let them know that you're on it, you recognize them, and if there's areas where they need feedback, you give it before the 11th hour as well. Yeah. With me the most out of what you just said is, the fact that you do understand generational differences and how leadership principles apply to that. So as a millennial, as a young professional, I know you're a young leader as well. I think it's super important to understand those nuances because it does affect the way, you know, we are motivated, how we go about wanting to fight for our companies, our brands, and also kind of our careers. Uh, so for example, even small things like recognition, you know, that's something typically millennials really want. Uh, you know, am I being recognized for my work? Does it even have an impact in this organization? Or am I just another ant in this 
you know, 80,000 corporation, uh, 80,000 employee corporation. So I, I think the fact that you understand that and you're applying it uh, really goes a long way. Am I invisible? Do they know I'm a contributor or not? And that's the thing, I think, you know, recognition is free. That's like it, it is free. It's like, like a good job, man. Like, well done, you know, good work. I see it. Yeah. And what I've realized is we, success happens in teams. It is very rare that one person has critically changed the direction of a firm or attained X number of growth. There are teams that have made it happen as well. And to, and you have to recognize that. Like, I am under no fallacy that any of my accomplishments have happened because of me. They've happened because of the teams that I've worked with. Mm -hmm. And I've been fortunate to work with those teams. I've contributed to those teams, but those teams have contrib contributed to the result as well. And I think as leaders, it's really important to know that, that it is always a collective and you have to share the, you've got to share the wealth with the collective as well. Right, right. In terms of kind of setting that, that principle of you being kind of a younger leader, younger CEO, and I'm harping on this <laughs> because and I hope you don't mind. No, that's fine, it's fine. Uh, because honestly, I don't think it's, it's talked about as much. And right. it's, it's not often that you, I ask this to a lot of the CEOs or founders who are right. friends of mine. And the reason I ask is because, you know, we're always caught in the dilemma of like, you know, you think you know it. And yeah. I, I don't know if you've gotten this kind of feedback, but being put in a position where you're leading a ton of people, some who are older than you, mm -hmm. did you ever have that difficulty or how did you get across that? Oh, that is a, that's a good question. I, I've always been a person who likes to take a democratic approach. Mm. Like I, I don't come into a situation thinking I just know how it's done. Yeah. Like. I'm very, I'm very attuned and very aware that I want to hear what everyone has to say before I can come up with my own hypothesis. So in, in terms of leading people who are old, then I think at the end of the day, if you're able to contribute to value, that's it. I think that that's like, and a value has, yeah, it doesn't, have, you know, we're, we're living in a, in a world where you've got like Mark Zuckerberg who began leading Facebook in his 20s. and you know you've got uh you, you know like the, the founders of like stitch fix and so forth or bumble and we have a lot more young leaders now than we did before and they're killing it mm -hmm. and they're killing it because they don't have any legacy mindset they're, they're they're just pioneers so for me it's just been what's right for business and how can we how can we justify our action and what's the value that's going to come out of it so i think that's really been my take on leading people older than me or younger than me or whatever it might be and a lot of it is also asking what is it that you want out of this as well like i'm fully aware that we're not solving world peace so everyone's in a career what do you want to do with your career what do you want to get out of it how can i help facilitate that and i, I think that was that's just been my leadership style but i i also realized when i came into leadership especially at the executive level one of my biggest awakenings was how the world treats you differently. And I, I like, uh, I was literally just talking to my brother-in-law about this, that I think there's a lot of emphasis put on defining people by what they do, so by their titles and so forth. And that if you're this, then you're, you must have had some kind of success versus if you're that. And I became very attuned to that where, especially when I came into executive leadership, I, I would always say, and I still believe, that we are more than what we do. Because there is a side to executive leadership that you are both up and down in the same moment. You could be winning and you could be losing all at the same time. And it's perception part of it, and part of it is reality, but it's juggling that. And I think that's where I really came into my own understanding that my value as a person is much larger 
than a career choice that I've made per se. I'd like it to be my actions with my family, my friends, how I can contribute to the community and the world around me. That is what I want to be known for in addition to this part of my career. Mm. It's a bit before the podcast started, but for people listening, what is that day in life look like for you to help you be successful, not only in the personal, but also in the professional life? I'd say in particular the last 18, 24 months, I've become a huge, huge um, proponent for holistic well-being. And uh, I don't think you can divorce your personal and your professional life. So for me, I am I wake up really early. And I miss the days when I had made sleeping an Olympic sport. I could sleep 25 out of 24 hours. That's hibernation. Yeah, like but in undergrad, that was my thing. I, I made sleeping an, an Olympic sport. But now I'm up every, I go to sleep by about 8.30, 9 p.m. every night. I'm up by about 4.30 a.m. every morning. And I wake up and I actually, uh, my, my colleague Ivy, when I was at WPP, gave me the five minute journal, which has changed my life every morning. I, yeah, like it's, it, it, it's got these principles of giving gratitude in Arabic, which is shukr, which is uh, thanks. And then it's around giving intention of what you want your day to be like. So it's a manifestation or in Arabic it would be near. Yeah. And then it's really taking ownership of what you want your day to be like. And I kid you not, as I've been doing that, I can almost premeditate how my day is going to turn out. It's that mind-body connection to life. So I do that when I wake up. I pray, uh, and then I go to the uh, to the gym. I have to work out, mm-hmm. and then throughout the day I keep an account of what is it that I've said I'm going to do in this day. How far have I gotten? Um, and I, I do pray five times a day, and I pray at work and so forth. Which that's amazing, man. Yeah. You know, I think for me it's been. Were you always doing this? I was. Even when I was at TransUnion, I you know went to HR to say, hey, can we get like a little room for us to pray in? For me, it's meditation, right? Prayer, meditation, however you do it. So uh, as Muslims, we have to pray five times a day. I'm definitely not the model Muslim, but I do pray five times a day because it helps me take that five minutes out of the day uh, at, at intervals to really focus my mind. Yeah. yeah, you know, like it just helps me like just get my bearings again because when you're just so th- deep and into the thick of it, yeah. Um, so I do that, and then every night I, before I'm about to go to sleep, I love reading books. So, what like, are you reading right now? So I am actually reading uh, Fatima Bhutto's book. Uh, it's called Songs of uh, Songs of Blood and Sword. It's about fiction or no? No, it's 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 a it's a biopic. It's a memoir mm-hmm. that she wrote about her father, Murtaza Bhutto. So the Bhuttos are. Um, they, so they are a political family in Pakistan. Uh, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto was a prime minister, uh, and then his daughter Benazir Bhutto, who was assassinated a few years back, she was prime minister. So it's about the dynasty of the Bhutto family. But it's an amazing book. Uh, it's interesting to see yourself in someone else's words. Uh, her father died at a very young age, and so it's her, it's her homage to him. Mm. And it's got this great historical context to it as well. So every night before I sleep, I read. I take an account of my day three things that went well two things that could be better and then go to sleep like i try not using any electronics at yeah. all before i go to sleep. something i've been actually looking to do myself and, and improving on i mean just the whole thing about you know no devices before going to sleep or as soon as you wake up and i think that really sets the theme uh, for the whole day right if you wake up the first thing you do is check your email and it's a really bad text, a bad email, something negative, it really does throw your whole day off. Interesting you should say that because you're right, it, the first thing you see or you do, it does shape your day. And that's why the first thing I have to do is the journal, is the journal because that's already shaped my day because already it's, it's 
given a direction to where I'm going to go. Yeah. Because there's, and I've realized in particular when it comes to work stuff, there's always going to be obstacles. It's true. What we're actually getting paid to do is how do you overcome those obstacles and how do you find growth from there? Mm. So I think even what I'm doing right now at Stagwell, it's been an interesting time to come and join the firm because the firm started off about four years ago where private equity fund uh, acquiring advertising companies across all of the facets of advertising from insights to digital transformation to creative um, to media buying to uh, public relations and communications so we've come from you know initially setting up the firm to now moving into that space of being a full-on integrated marketing and communications company so coming in now at that time it's an exciting time where every morning I wake up the first thing I want to do is check my email what's happening and things move so quickly I would say for sure this firm is probably one of the fastest firms I've ever worked at like wow. speed to market how quickly things move forward is just it's admirable mm. and the people are just so like I'm very connected with our COO and CMO Beth and you know, like in, in Mark and the rest of the team, things move very quickly and conversations happen very fast. And we pride ourselves on being simple and doing things in, in a very systematic way at scale. Okay. So it's, it's, it's a good time for, to join the firm, but it makes me want to check my email all the time. But I'm like, I have to be able to carve time out where my brain can take time to just... Right, it's just a rest and recharge. I think that's, that's important for everyone. Um, I mean, in business, it's a long game. It's not a sprint, right? You have a good point. I think your career is a long game it, it, because there is, you need to have the energy, you need to have the right mind space for it because things are changing and technology, culture, the way people see things, products, services, so forth, things are evolving so quickly. You need to be in a good mind space to be able to absorb all that, make sense of it, and see how it applies to your business and ultimately deliver growth for your business. You speak so far, it seems to me like a lot of your motivation is intrinsic, right? A lot of it comes from within. I'm kind of curious to know, one, what keeps you motivated, but also two, what are you motivated to still do, accomplish, achieve in your life, in your career? So what keeps me motivated? I would... I'd be lying if I didn't say my parents being proud of me is not a motivator. Like my, my parents saying that, or my mom saying that she's proud of me goes a very long way. So that to me is a motivator. Knowing that I could you know, make my mom happy and uh, do right by my family and make sure all my siblings, my mom, my nephews, they're all in a good place. That's a motivator for me. And, and I like being able to do things for my family. Um, I just... Uh, couple years back from one of my mom's birthdays my mom has always wanted a Mercedes mm. and uh, we came up from my parents came from extremely affluent backgrounds and then my father passed away when I was younger and so we were at a time of being in humble beginnings if you will mm. and we had a samosa catering business and oh, wow. uh, yeah I mean we got we used to make like 3,000 samosas a week in the UK in oh, the UK okay, okay. in the UK yeah I mean like my mom sold out with teddy bears and coats and uh, one of five kids my mom was uh, widowed at 28 so she was like a hard worker and I remember one time we were making samosas and my mom's like nice one day I'm gonna get a Mercedes and she was with an Indian accent Mercedes and that was I, was I was a kid and I remember like it's funny I got an ad on uh, actually on Pandora music from Benzel Bush Mercedes this is when I was living in uh, on in the East Coast mm -hmm. the ad kept on playing and I was like I don't need a car I live on the East Coast and then it came up, it kept on coming up and it was around the time of my mom's birthday. And I was like, wait, my mom this has all, 
Yeah, and I was like, my mom's always wanted a Mercedes, even though my mom can go buy one for herself now, but she is, you know, she's just a very frugal person. She'd much rather buy me a Mercedes than buy it for herself. She's just kids first. She's just become that person because she's always taking care of us. And even now as, a, as an adult in the twilight years of her life, so I bought her Mercedes for her birthday and it was just an epic moment. Not because, you know, there's the, it's not that the material aspect, it was more the symbolic side mm -hmm. that I could make a dream come true for my mother. That's such a great feeling. Yeah. Especially while they're around. I think that, that's kind of, like, we talked about the Kobe Bryant story. Yeah, yeah Kobe Bryant, man. Just guess, yeah. prayers for his family. But yeah, you know, to do for your family, I think that is a huge motivator. Because mm -hmm. you never know when, when uh, I mean, you're kind of present today and, and this is like really all you have control over and if you can do it now why not right yeah and no one lives forever that's a fact death and taxes but it's you know trying to do right by people that you care about so i think to, for me the motivator is my family and then i think or i know the other piece of it is for my nephews i i think about them a lot especially as they're getting older that I would want to leave this world in a better place for them be it the environment be it culture be it at the way people are seen in the world and be it my own actions so like role model, yeah. yeah you know like i don't want to do anything that my nephews would ever have to question mm. so that is like for me is a big piece i i don't have children but the closer i have are my nephews so i'm always like would they you know if when they grow up and they had to question this would they be all right with it so that is you know as an uncle i think that that responsibility definitely falls on me in terms of what I want to do, gosh, there's a lot. I'd love to write a book, mm. which I've been working on for 12 years now. I need to actually sit down and finish it. What would it be about? It would be, it'd be, about, it would be a fictional book about what's well, it's already begun. But, but the, the whole premise is uh, that there's a character who has an opportunity during a week of his life to relive his life and the decisions he's done, how he would undo them and do them differently. Mm. And uh, it's actually based here in Chicago. I began it on a train ride out to Montana. So I think I'd love to write a book and I'd like to continue to be in this field of creating cool content and working with people who inspire me every day to do better. I think the world that we live in today, there is so much polarization from uh, what you're seeing across the world in India, China, uh, Myanmar, Burma, Burma, UK, wherever you are, there's some type of polarization. And it's for me, I'm motivated to try to help bring the world together in a way that we can respect each other's differences but yet accept how alike we are and focus on being human first and first i love that last message man thanks for bringing that up uh, and thank you for taking the time to be on this podcast always great chatting with you and i'm just glad that we were able to actually record this so people in our in both of our communities could uh, benefit from your experiences so really appreciate it and, and us always dropping the fire man hey george it's always great listening to your podcast and we've got our coffee here yeah, as well we're drinking coffee. and yeah we're keeping it authentic but it's always good and thank you for having me on your show mm -hmm.